for me, this was a text um, that I always hoped would become readable in English. I think for many people who work with Anders, this is a really central text. Is this a diary? Is it philosophy? Is it literature? Is it, you know, and, and for me, this was so fascinating. And then trying to translate it and having luckily had the opportunity to do so, I have no answers. <laughs> I only have more questions. And the, the amazing thing is that it's, it's so readable, so simple, but it's actually so complex at the same time. And that's why I think this is such a wonderful opportunity to unpack all these ideas with people who, you know, are coming to this text maybe new, but also, you know, bringing readings to the text that I'm sure will surprise me, but be totally plausible at the same time. So, yeah, I'm excited to hear more about it. That's the voice of Chris Muller, Senior Lecturer in Cultural Studies and Media at Macquarie University. And his is one of five, yes, five voices you'll hear in this episode of Unpacking the Real. You'll also hear our collaborator in this project, Ben Nickel, Lecturer in Comparative Literature and Translation Studies at the University of Sydney. And I'm Helen Wolfenden, lecturer in radio at Macquarie University. Our guests for what will be the first of a two-part discussion are Claudia Sandberg, scholar and filmmaker from the University of Melbourne, and Bernd Buzel, philosopher and media scholar from the University of Potsdam. Our conversation with Bernd and Claudia brings some of those new insights into Gunther Anders' Hollywood diary that Chris talked about. But this has been a long journey, so I want to give you some context. We recorded this conversation in May 2021. Back then, most of the world was going in and out of lockdowns, and we hadn't even begun recording our audio diary version, Real is Not Real Enough. But we were actively thinking about how we would translate the text into audio. The people you'll hear speaking couldn't have imagined that this is how our conversation would end up sounding. But that's kind of the point. This has always been a project about the relationship between past and present, fact and fiction, and the impossible boundaries that exist between them. It was these conversations that you've heard as our Season 2 Unpacking the Real that helped us craft the audio diary, Real is Not Real Enough and you'll hear extracts of the relevant diary entries when they're referred to in our discussion. In our early enthusiasm, we recorded a very long conversation. So this one is in two halves. Here, we travel through deep dives into heritage cinema and notions of truth. In the second half, the following episode, we'll continue our discussion with Claudia and Bernd and pick up threads on exile, shame, and the relationship between laughter and pain. These are our final two episodes for Season 2 of Unpacking the Real. So let's end by going back to the beginning. I asked Berndt and Claudia a question we've often asked our guests at the beginning of our conversations, and that is if there's a favourite line or particular part of the text that gives us a path in. Berndt, you want to start? I'm looking through my notes now, <laughs> but uh, out of out of memory, I can maybe pick up on on this that uh, Anders writes about uh, what he calls the heritage industry, 
and that it has not really started yet, he writes, and this is 1941, of course, but with this costume palace, um, he sees a beginning of whole industry that might come up, and he kind of prophecies uh, it's becoming uh, uh, hegemonic at some point, and uh, that's what we could discuss, because uh, in a way, I think this uh, has become true. I couldn't say when, but maybe from the 50s or 60s on. And he also writes about um, what his position would be and that he wouldn't want to be there once this picks up in the USA. He would want to go back to uh, Europe uh, if it still exists, because in 1941 he is, of course, quite pessimistic about that. So that is really an interesting uh, prophecy um, that kind of became true, I think. But wait, things are changing. The past is becoming all the rage. Look, since I first came to New York, six years ago, some antique shops have been shooting up here and there. But the heritage industry that could serve the masses is in its infancy. It will take time until it can churn out a daily supply of fresh history. Who knows how long that might take, especially in times of war. Here, in the new world, the past still lies ahead. Though, by the time the demand for it reaches fever pitch in America, I hope I'll have returned to old Europe. Provided, of course, Europe still exists. Or will ever exist again. Claudia, did you, just to pick up on that thread, was there something that sort of leapt out for you? Uh, two things. Um, first of all, maybe just to add to the to the, this whole heritage um, trope. Uh, when I um, with students talk, uh, you know, in in a film theory class about um, Baudrillard, Simulacrum, and the heritage cinema, the text here latches on so well to this question of what is the original and you know what's the copy and eventually we burn you know the libraries burn down and and then we don't have any original anymore when standing in front of a car or a bomber plane we know that 10 100 if not a thousand identical cars and planes exist so even when one car or plane is destroyed we know that the make of car or type of plane will continue they can easily be replaced the moment they are lost and, thus, they aren't lost at all. When we look back into the past, at the fire that destroyed the great library of Alexandria, for instance, no such consolation can be found. Its flames burned an archive of many unique and irreplaceable items. Used to replaceability and reproduction, we begin to panic the more we think about this loss, because this fire was no exception. Uh, what Anders does here so well is saying already that many people, and of course, you know, he looks down on America and, and, and American people, they only get their history classes from the movies. And that this determines their understanding of history and of the places and of the events and their, their imagination of how it's all been. Um, and then when we go forward into to what I was kind of researching for this particular class in film theory um, on this idea of, of the, the heritage cinema today, 
um, this feeling of creating a nostalgia to a place or to a time that has never been like that. And this, you know, this, of course, this trend has started, I don't know, kind of in the, with, the, with the second millennium, with kind of with the, all the Downton Abbeys and uh, the costume dramas, the, the English costume dramas going back to the, to the good old imperial times. And it's not only the costumes, kind of the mise-en-scene has to be just perfect and authentic. And we know, you know, it's, it's a very uh, kind of tentious term. There's even historical faces um, that that fit like I don't know Helena Bonham Carter or or Colin Firth, and of course this has also been picked up in um, in, in German cinema and is very much talked about in in terms of let's say um, in of course in German cinema we you know we we are always with um, with with other times uh, you know with with Hitler and World War Two and then I think kind of downfall is you know is an example where you this has always been this. Um, this idea of, you know, it has to be perfect, you know, down to the accent, you know, um, Bruno Ganz has to have a certain gesture and a certain way of moving and 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 all of this is there. So when I read, read Anna's text and, you know, this, all of this, you know, it came down to that or, you know, it this came back to me or I, or I kind of reflected that. This one thing, and if I can just kind of go back to your question of um, what is my favorite um, maybe passage or a sentence. There are a few, um, but one which I found very funny, and and I think that's why you know I latch on to kind of Ben's um, idea or interest in this as, as as pop culture as this being funny. Uh, when Anders is talking about his former friend or colleague, and his mother has been a widow, a single parent, and who just kind of saved every penny to bring up. Their son was really a talent, a Kokoschka student, and wanting to be the next Rembrandt. And then what he does is now um, just kind of drawing the the blood onto the kind of old linen dresses. And then at the same time, and this is when it gets funny, is to... Then Anders comes in with all that, and I can just see that with all the gear, with all the um, cleaning stuff and equipment completely kind of loaded with it. And his former friend or colleague doesn't even want to see him. So even though he is kind of down in that hierarchy, he's still higher than Anders. Um, and, and that was a very kind of vivid, a very visual way of, of describing something that is funny and at the same time is just so sad. And I think this is kind of that balance also in, in the text, you know, that he can be just so ironic and not sarcastic, I would say ironic and funny, and then always comes back to something that's just dead serious, kind of a worry that is always there. That small artist colony was led by the Berliner R. Just five years ago, he was a promising student of Kokoschka. Incidentally, I had a passing acquaintance with Ars' ailing mother in the 1920s in Berlin, a much more commendable person than her son. She had conceived him during the First World War, but was a widow by the time he was born, and even when suffering from tuberculosis, she kept working to support him. Yes, they predicted him to have a great future as an artist. And here it is, greatness. Her sacrifices gave her darling the opportunity to be a foreman in God's own country and oversee the renewal of Roman bloodstains and chipped verdigris. 
Still, Art's bird degree job is not entirely without glory. His work supposedly does require special skill. In short, R is part of the palace elite, or at least he belongs to the elite amongst the employees, and his special abilities earn him considerably more than my cleaning job, a job I do already master perfectly, even though I can build on no prior knowledge. And, at every possible occasion, he lets his status show. This became evident this afternoon, when I strayed into the vicinity of his exclusive crew. I was struggling with my assorted cleaning equipment and fighting with the metal snake of my vacuum cleaner. He glared at me, and his look gave me to understand that he didn't know me and did not wish to be recognized. Clearly, the poor fellow was mortified that he might have to admit an association with someone like me in front of his subordinates. I felt no desire to add insult to injury. The gap between who he now is and who he once wanted to become seemed like punishment enough. Claudia, just going exactly off of that, like when I talked to Chris about the piece a lot, a lot of times and we talked about uh, the humor and all of it, And I thought, like, there's this form, you know, the best humor, the best comedy is the true one. The one that makes you cry, but you have to laugh to get on with it. And I thought just this idea that Anders is, like, highly educated, like, just pure brains. And he goes into this catacombic sort of structure and he has to fake, um, like, just the world. And Americans just love the idea that this is all, you know, so real and it's so fake. And I thought, just... Like the satirical element in all of that is just the most pop culture, like highbrow kind of thing you can ever imagine. And if you go to like contemporary pop culture, the whole industry is about looking behind the scenes. How is it made? Like people just love um, to figure out the mystery, you know, like the true crime of Hollywood is that it's actually all fake. So I thought that, you know, it's, it's such talk about heritage. It's all invented. It's nothing is real. The humor in it is so brilliant because it's such an acute observation of American culture. And like maybe we're, you know, the world culture that Norman was headed to, that it's just so insightful. That's why I love it so much. I agree with Claudia. That is like film studies 101, I think. Chris, did you want to jump in there? Because, um, you know, I, I've got to agree. I think that's kind of the, the passage that stands out for me the most. There is this kind of amazing image with all this poignancy and humor and, and this kind of uh, savage truth to it as well. I like the phrase savage truth, right? Because I think there's the, there's the profound paradox. As I said, in a sense, the, that's what I meant earlier. Anders is, the caricature, is, a, is a character in his own text in this, precisely this scene, in these kind of scenes where, you know, there's so many different versions of, of his voice in his writing. And in everything that is about Hollywood or California, it's always funny. It's always this kind of hyperbolic, paradoxical, deadly series, but also super playful, super in love with this pop culture, with this kind of... Suddenly, I think what Ben, you were saying about... Um, oh, no, sorry, what you were saying, Claudia, that um, film becomes our principal medium for encountering the world, just because we spend so much time in front of the TV anyway. Um, 
is something that is, I think, in, at the heart of this text that he's starting to realize that somehow what matters more is what, what is on the screen. The images we project are much more pragmatically real. They have much more influence on the way we think about the past, each other, different places, that in a sense, uh, what was is not only irrelevant, it's actually profoundly disappointing. <laughs> it's kind of when you go there and when you discover the truth, it's kind of, oh, right, really, is that the Romans were only like that? Or they, you know, this was all dusty and broke easily and wasn't, you know, it wasn't as kind of grandiose as we thought. And whenever I watch historical dramas now that are so visceral, that often have this kind of, you know, the camera takes us so close to what is happening. We see perspectives that we could never see if we were actually there. It would all happen too fast and would be confusing. Just this kind of weird intensity of the way the past comes alive on screen as something that is so meaningful, but at the same time often really remote, right? It's often a very gruesome or, I don't know, it, it seems that journey between the spectator and what is seen on film is, I think, something that I'm really fascinated in. And I think the text is doing that with the reader as well. It's trying to kind of drag you in, but also make you step back. I can follow up because um, <clears throat> the whole thing about, um, you know, uh, learning history through um, movies or TV productions uh, and I think this is um, even a grander problem because there are so many um, documentaries, uh, television documentaries, like from the History Channel or other companies or even stately-owned uh, comp uh, production companies uh, that have a certain um, aesthetics that I personally disagree with. Um, but this has become such a huge industry. It's not just the, the polished and, and, and high-end uh, dramas like uh, The Crown or whatever, uh, but much more, which um, probably is used, I don't know about it, but which uh, I can imagine is used in, in uh, history lessons in, in schools. So this text really touches upon that and, and um, predates this um, history, even even if we should talk about when the text actually was uh, re-edited and, uh, and published, because Anders um, um, kind of uh, set a trap uh, when he um, uses these old uh, diary entries and then edits them uh, a quarter of a century later. So maybe he rewrote some of them, but that's another topic that we might talk about, the, the question of how, how much fake is there in these diaries. I think, yeah, it feels like that one's a can of worms that we should open, you know, <laughs> when, <laughs> how real is the diary in the sense of, you know, I think you've sort of alluded to this, Chris, in terms of understanding, you know, when, where do we locate it um, chronologically, you know. Um, have you got some, some more thoughts on that, Bernd? Uh, on the question of this, this, is it fake or is it real? How much how much fakeness is in these um, presumably authentic uh, diary entries? Um, I think uh, Anders um, is a very good um, trap setter, and I think I, I fell into the trap, like probably other readers as well. But I read them as an authentic piece of okay, he must have written it down when he was actually working in 1941 in this costume palace. And um, I don't care about when he published it or if, it, uh, if um, somebody else published it after his death. Um, it has to be authentic. Um, so, or I just didn't question it. 
But um, of course, knowing that he um, also developed as an author and a thinker in, from the 1950s on, this question becomes much more interesting and problematic. But to really elaborate, we would have to go into the history of, of Anders as, as a writer and um, his development. My childhood in Breslau stretches deep into paleontological prehistory. My mind can only persuade me for a few seconds that my erstwhile namesake and I are one and the same. <laughs> He must have been a distant ancestor. The house of life may look tiny from the outside, but the moment one steps through the door into one's own space takes one, two, three steps and looks back. The door is no longer to be seen and the space one inhabits turns out to be endless. So what is more true, right? The story that convinces us that we're experiencing this past or, or in this world, or the kind of actually being in the moment without those narrative aids that in a sense distort the truth and shape the way you see it. And, you know, I don't think any historical movie pretends that it's history. <laughs> I mean, when I read the diary, I constantly see the films I've seen somewhere in the costumes, hanging around in that costume palace. And not one of them says, oh, I'm a documentary about what the Romans were like. That's just how I then think about Romans. I think I've been in a sense misled, but at the same time, I don't know. That just becomes this strange fabric of fiction that connects us to some sort of meaning. I, I, it's a very confusing space for me. I, you know, I, I was one of the people who didn't think that much about pop culture. And then I started to talk to Ben who told me, oh, every problem is solved in pop culture and also posed in pop culture. You can do anything with pop culture. You just don't realize it. <laughs> it's, it's like a Swiss knife, like a toolkit, so you can find anything. And I think it's in Terry Pritchard where it says at some point it's in the Hockfather, some text like that. It's like you need to believe in the small lies. You can be, be, believe in the big ones. And I think that's what particularly Hollywood culture is training you to do. You believe in the small lies. You can believe in the big, like the national myths. You can believe in the heritage. You can do away with, you know, like indigenous settlements, you can do away with the before, you know, the great historical beforehand. Um, pop culture is like really, as I think said before, like an insidious tool that is actually, um, I, I mean, I was half joking when I said Disney might be the biggest sort of weapon that America's ever produced. It's like, it's A-grade material. It's it's this insidious cultural warfare. And I think Anders, to me, is so masterfully like dismantling, disarming um, that sort of um, weapons-grade industry that... Um, is armed with, I always picture like like an army of um, boom mics and like this um, the grenade busters, like, you know, um, almost with um, all the spotlights. So it's like setting up this army of cultural production and it's just ready to, you know, wage war and convince us that they are the enemies. This is real, you know, this is good America, this is bad Germany or whatever you have there. Yeah, that to me is like, you know, the answer is pop culture and the, the problem is pop culture and he brings that out. I mean, this is, I think, the cleverness of, of, of it. And I think the cleverness of pop is that it's kind of showing you, oh, yeah, this is all totally unbelievable, but you still feel everything. It's still there. I mean, you watch Cleopatra and you see Elizabeth Taylor 
and this like golden shimmering lame fabric and this is like such a like a, a fake plasticky kind of like trick that they're doing with the cameras and everything and then you like to this day any girl or you know drag queen wants to be um cleopatra in 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 america for halloween and it is like such a staple of like being cleopatra but being like not the real one that they find utterly unattractive. It needs to be like the perfect smoky eye around it. It needs to be that kind of Cleopatra, otherwise it's not fun, it's not real. So I want to kind of zoom in further on this idea of emotion and, and what we are left with as an audience, you know, because the diary presents uh, this idea, you know, the cinema is a, a process that manufactures emotion. So when we as an audience experience the emotion that has been kind of crafted within us. How, how do we make sense of that? You know, we, we are genuinely crying in response to levers that have been pulled to make us cry. Burned, are those tears real? <laughs> how, do we, how do we understand that? Um, that's a beautiful question. Um, if you're experiencing the emotion in the cinema, then um, you feel certain physical reactions uh, to what is happening on the screen or in your mind or between the screen and your mind. So the physical reactions are real, I would say. Um, what they are regarding to or what they, in, in, what they are telling you is a whole different story, of course. Um, this might um, just um, um, hack into whatever um, uh, is at your mind at this moment of, uh, of your life. So um, it's not predetermined how you react to whatever physical reactions uh, the film induces to you. So... I think it's, uh, there's a double answer to that. So physical reactions is the one, and whatever you do or your mind does with it is a different thing. Yeah. Is that something you're, as a, as a filmmaker, Claudia, you know, particularly in a form like documentary where truth is at stake in a, in a different kind of way, are those sort of emotional reactions of an audience something that, that you're mindful of? You certainly don't work towards those, um, you know, uh, moments um, that are kind of set up to make you cry or um, be happy um, in a, in a documentary production. A documentary is or is is, is true as as fake as a fiction film, and and that's why, of course, it's very problematic these days to you know to define one or the other. Um, in a fictional film can be as, um, a, I don't know, as political um, as a documentary is. It can ask the same kind of questions. Or I think what you want to do and what makes, I think, a good film is when the audience is left with questions um, and is left with a question that is addressed to themselves and is something that might be very uncomfortable. And then coming back to the heritage cinema, it just leaves you with a fuzzy feeling <laughs> of having seen a great film of, you know, having been in the 1940s for a time in this uh, in this castle. And you see Kira Knightley, and he has he had this great dress. And um, but of course you don't know. It must have been really cold, and you know it was really drafty, and, and all of those. And this is this, of course, this is all not in, in these films. And and that's why, you know, coming back to a documentary, what you try to do is you set out to find some sort of truth. You 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 don't know it yet. That that's the beauty of it, that you can come with a script and you know who you want to interview, but then you arrive and it's completely different. The people tell you different things than you expect. And then you have these these fantastic accidents that happen that you know you find something that you 
didn't come for. And and that's something really beautiful. And when I when I did um, a documentary um, on uh, Chilean um, exile artists in East German film, um, I went to Santiago with my uh, with my partner um, in this project, and we arrived there um, at this woman's house. She was what, around kind of forty. Um, and she had acted as a child um, in one of the kind of East German films. Um, and we come there, kind of it was 11 o'clock in the morning, and the first thing she does is cry um, because she was just so moved and she was angry because her children, had, you know, something had happened. And then she saw the film or part of the film that, that she made when she was small, and then she cried again. Um, and and so you don't, sometimes you don't know, you know, you're kind of drawn into this, you know, you want to just be someone who is asking the questions, but you are, you're certainly part of it. And so in, in that sense, kind of you make this narrative and you come with your own perspective and with your own question. And in that sense, you know, every, um, every work is, you know, of course, set out with your own ideas, with your own philosophy, that this is how you kind of, you understand or, or an audience also understands the film. And this is also a certain audience who's coming and see the film or not. That's quite clear. Um, kind of only kind of the best filmmakers can produce something that is maybe so complex that it kind of confuses you in your maybe even, let's say, kind of ideological um, ideas. As you were talking, Claudia, I haven't realized how much this diary is actually about historical film and heritage. <laughs> so I was just thinking of any kind of Hollywood movie. But I've, of course, I haven't realized that that's probably the movies I watch. I'm not sure. <laughs> so for me, that's just a Hollywood movie. So I, I wasn't even that aware of the whole... Um, it is really all historical. There's no superheroes in there. There's nothing... Like, the only costume he's describing are costumes of of actual figures, right? Of, of like some kind of historical periods. Don't forget the nuns. Favorites, <laughs> the nuns. Like he's going on and he's been going on for like a year now. It's got me through quarantine, the nuns. You shouldn't mention them. Yeah, well, I think we should come back to the nuns because uh, you were saying when you make a documentary, you kind of have a script, but you don't know where it will go. But I think one of the confusing or one of the paradoxes with historical drama is that in a sense, we should know exactly where it goes because it, there is historical record or at least version of the truth. There's all these prefabricated texts. And then every time one of these movies gets shown, which is evidently, you know, populated by superstars that we know have a private life in the present and aren't really King Henry or whatever. Every time the question comes, well, but is it really, is it really accurate? I think, you know, did that battle really end that way? Was there, is, was there really the amount, right amount of soldiers fighting in Braveheart, you know, against the English invader? I, I don't know. I just wonder if you have any thoughts on, on that kind of paradox that somehow when we make up history, the point of reference becomes, why is it true? And when we show documentaries, it's like, we want to find a story, a narrative that brings us closer to that truth or maybe where you want to go with, with the film. Um, maybe it's an unclear question. I don't quite know what you're asking, but I'm, I'm responding anyway. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> I totally <No>. like it. <laughs> the, I, I don't mean for me. That's, it doesn't matter if it if it's accurate or not. I think I don't really ask that question. I think what is interesting, maybe about an um, in a historical film, is giving us a new perspective 
on a character that we always thought we know everything about. And, and so that, that sense of, um, or this notion or this strive or the expectation of accuracy, I don't know. You know, it's, it's now it's kind of set up, this expectation is set up that it has to be like that. And, and, and a lot of money is spent in, in pre-production for those research assistants who go through this uh, archive, this, you know, I don't know what is called, unnecessary Hollywood costume fundus um, storage to see, you know, if, if they find something that they like, or um, if they find something to make it anew, because it has to be old new, <laughs> as he was saying, which was fantastic. All our antiques must be current. In the costume palace, new old things are made. Every brand new item is also made to look worn out, else it would appear inauthentic and unconvincing. No surprise then that specialist workers are retained here who have the sole task of maintaining the required used feel. They continually ensure that the wear that would already be worn off tomorrow looks nice and fresh. And so it kind of once again... Um... Yeah, I don't, I don't know. You know, a historical film doesn't always have to be accurate in the sense of kind of historical accuracy because we cannot achieve that. And I think it's not, I think it's not important. It's important to ask the right questions and to stir something new up, something that has to do with us. And it's, I think that's exactly the thing, that you don't want to leave those historical films or whatever the matter is, you know, in history, you don't want to leave it there in that past. You want to show it has something to do with us, with us now, with the present tense. I, I've got a sort of a, a question on that about whether or not fiction or exaggeration can get us closer to truth uh, in a sense. Berndt, did you have a perspective on that? Well, yes, but it's uh, probably Günther Anders' perspective um, because he um, devised the method um, of exaggeration. And I think that's uh, very valuable and um, has been also adopted by, even Adorno uses this uh, once in one of his texts, that uh, to make uh, things clear in the humanities, you have to um, exaggerate your point. And Anders uh, compares this, and I think this is uh, quite, um, um, quite astonishing, he compares this to exaggeration in natural sciences. Because to look at, um, at microorganisms, uh, you have to have a microscope, of course. You have to exaggerate uh, your point of view or, um, or the scales that you are looking into. Or the telescope does the same thing on, on the other side of the scale. So in a way, uh, exaggeration is, has always been um, the main method for coming up with truths. So I think um, this is uh, not just um, an ironic take, I think. Uh, I think it's, uh, it actually hits the nerve of what uh, humanities are doing and probably also filmmakers are doing. I don't know about that. But of course you have to um, deal with the scales and um, um, highlight something. And this all means in some way to exaggerate its size or whatever. But, but because what you just said about the microscope, I thought, you know, that's what, to me, Anders is like the, the first person to actually define the genre of mockumentary and just this idea of like exaggerating it. And if you watch, you know, all these Hitler mockumentaries that came out and they're taking over, like people are turning to the mockumentary about these like historical 
figures and they're exaggerating this detail, like Hitler, you know, waking up and the camera zooms in and you see him in his like rustic pajamas and then he's like completely just like irritated by like some somebody in the background shoots them point blank and there's like this brutality is like the first three seconds that comes up and it's all these techniques of like the zoom in, the close up, um, a hilarious kind of soundtrack, you know, um, and all of the costume design and I thought what Anders does in this diary, this is like straddling this divide between truth and and fiction and the comedic element in it is making it so much more digestible, but audiences embrace it. And I think, well, Claudia, what you said before, you find, in document, you find something you didn't necessarily come for. And I think this with Anders, you, you, like, you actually came for what you wanted to find. This like weird thing about like this kind of film reality, and I may, may be able to clarify that a bit more. It's this weird thing about this is like, a very easy reality, but it's a very dangerous one. But how do you get people to enter into that space to want to confront it? I thought, you know, that comedic element might be a way to explain that. I mean, I guess I can now do the postscript of <laughs> of the diary has become very, very relevant um, in which he clarifies it's not a biography or historical record. It's a text about the present. <laughs> And he said, I only kept what turned out to be true. <laughs> you know, so it's like um, he describes himself as this voracious bread maker, right? So he kind of says, um, I didn't keep the flour, <laughs> you know? I'm just giving you the baked bread. And this is what history has produced uh, in, in this story. And it's the same image as, it's the same image, Bernd, as the one with the microscope, because he asks us to consider, well, what do you think is truer? the flour or the bread you eat and are nourished on and the one that sustains you, right? And, and I think it's this kind of image that he's using again and again, this idea of there's this grain of history, that, this raw material that we continuously process in culture, in humanities to make meaning, to, to combat each other, to humiliate each other, to fight wars, fall in love, send heroes out and come back. And we're continuously reprocessing this. And I think the diary takes us into this kind of weird Hollywood palace to show us, oh, there's the, the 17 Napoleons. You know, they're all, we've encountered this supposed raw ingredient in so many different ways. Today, it's the three Napoleons. I'm finished with the first and the bottom half of the second. But my feelings about them are starting to change. Of course, I don't deny that the three Napoleons have different sizes. Number two is a full hand longer than number one. Number three is half a hand longer than number two. Having more than one Napoleon makes good business sense, as one can never predict the chest and leg size of the next actor playing a Napoleon. But is this practical explanation really enough to explain the existence of these three here? Their multiplication probably has a very different reason. And I think Napoleon is always a code word for Hitler as well, for Anders a lot of the time. I think, or I don't know if it is, but I think there is this fascination with substituting them. If Hitler was just a man, or if these figures were just people who vanished, they wouldn't be very interesting or exciting. It's the very fact that they're no longer that, that they somehow have become the victim of their own reproduction, mass production and 
we the victim of the products that creates i think that's the kind of strange process that is at work if i may pick up because what you said um, uh, made me think of um, you know the the palimpsest so it's um, a, a piece of uh, what was it pergament or whatever um, that has been rewritten uh, or written over again and again and again because there was a shortage of the material so um, and this also subverts the dichotomy of, of fact and fiction because in a way everything that we uh, deal with as a fact uh, has been rewritten countless times so um, uh, it's more or less um, um, a continuous process of accumulating new meanings and I think this is what he brings up in this uh, description of, of these objects that are not fitting into this old dichotomy anymore. And he writes then, of course, can these uh, imitations become originals once the real originals um, are destroyed or are forgotten or whatever? And he says basically yes, but if these originals, these true originals pop up again, then these imitations of the originals become real imitations again. So, um, which is also kind of kind of a strange thought that uh, the ontological status is changing all the time, depending on on uh, what pops up here or there. But it's probably because uh, the whole dichotomy doesn't work anymore. But then, of course, uh, the question doesn't go away about uh, how we deal with things, and uh, probably another distinction would be between um, what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. Because if we go back to the, the question of exaggeration, uh, to exaggerate something means that you start with something that is there in some way. So there's some ontological truth to it. Um, it, it doesn't become fiction once you exaggerate the thing. Um, but the question is what do we exaggerate to what extent and what do we not exaggerate or di diminish even? So um, what do we put attention to and what do we uh, neglect? So then the whole question is not so much an epistemological one, but more an, an ethical one and a political one. Berend Boesel is a philosopher and media scholar from the University of Potsdam. You can hear more from Berend and also Claudia Sandberg, scholar and filmmaker from the University of Melbourne, in our next episode. You've been listening to Unpacking the Real, Season 2 of Real is Not Real Enough. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Unpacking the Real is a collaborative research project created by Chris Muller and Helen Wolfenden from Macquarie University and Ben Nickel from the University of Sydney. We're grateful for the support of the many organisations who've got behind this project. You can find out more at the Goethe website for Real is Not Real Enough. Check the link in the show notes. <laughs>